Welcome to Philosophers on Medicine. Side effects include having your mind blown. I'm Jonathan Fuller. Evidence-based medicine, or EBM, was introduced in the early 1990s as a move to increase medicine's uptake of published scientific evidence, especially evidence from clinical epidemiology. It is now the standard, such that its underlying philosophical ideas have become invisible to many. However, since its launch, evidence-based medicine has had its critics, including healthcare professionals and philosophers. Philosophers began to ask questions. What is evidence according to evidence-based medicine? What justifies EBM's confidence in some forms of evidence, namely randomized controlled trials and meta-analyses, over others, like observational studies or evidence of biologic mechanisms? Evidence-based medicine led to a renaissance in philosophical attention towards medicine and medical evidence. In today's consultation, I speak with four philosophers of medicine, Ross Upshur, Jeremy Howick, Jacob Staganga, and John Worrall. Here's my conversation with Ross Upshur, professor in the Dalalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. Dr. Upshur, what is evidence-based medicine? Well, there's a long and a short answer to that. Um, evidence-based medicine is an approach in clinical medicine to encourage clinicians to use research evidence derived from real patients to improve patient care. Evidence-based medicine is also committed to what's called a hierarchy of evidence, that not all studies are created equally, that some studies have certain desirable properties, usually in terms of limiting the bias, that is the influences on the study that might lead people to have mistaken beliefs about the outcomes or the effectiveness of a technology. So evidence-based medicine tells clinicians that they ought to use what they call the best external evidence to inform clinical decision-making. It's not so much a philosophy as a series of recommendations to clinicians about how to optimize clinical care. And where did this approach come from? Well, I happen to have been around when this approach was started. So when I went to medical school in the 1980s at McMaster, there was a professor of medicine. He was the chief of medicine by the name of Jack Hirsch, an internationally renowned specialist in thromboembolism. And he terrified all the medical students and clerks. And he'd come to rounds and you would get a question posed to you and you would give an answer and he would immediately say, what's your evidence for that? And by evidence, he meant, how do you justify your choice of either diagnostic tests, therapeutics, your belief in the prognosis for the patient? And he influenced a generation of residents and scholars at McMaster University Medical School, including some of the people who became what was branded as evidence-based medicine. So people like David Sackett, and particularly Gordon Guyatt, who is known to have coined the term evidence-based medicine. Ironically, I think they were originally thinking of calling it science-based medicine. And it's interesting now because there is a group talking about science-based medicine. That's what evidence-based medicine came from. But it kind of morphed into really using what's called clinical epidemiology, which is the application of epidemiological approaches, which are quantitative methods of understanding data in health to the application of clinical care. And then clinical epidemiology then started to look very carefully at what's called critical appraisal. 
So critical appraisal said just because something's been studied or published in the peer-reviewed literature doesn't mean it's true. In fact, many study designs are prone to certain errors. So you need to have a system of questions that you ask of the published literature to determine its quality. So clinical epidemiology plus critical appraisal, then the growing belief that randomized control trials and particularly systematic reviews of randomized control trials brought together a more robust appreciation of what works and doesn't in clinical medicine. You put those three together and those are kind of the elements that became evidence-based medicine. And it was in the early 90s when there was a paper published in the Journal of the American Medical Association that launched the shit kind of like off to, off to Troy we go. Uh, so uh, that created the movement that's now known as evidence-based medicine. So from the early 90s to the present time, it has permeated through all aspects of healthcare, health policy, and even beyond. So now you hear the federal government of Canada, for example, saying that its policy is going to be evidence-based. So from a small, mighty professor of medicine at McMaster through the lens of clinical epidemiology, mostly general internists at McMaster, to now a kind of buzzword that everybody likes to use. What does it mean to base medicine on evidence? Nothing. <laughs> I've argued that you can't really base medicine on evidence because one of the interesting things about the advent of evidence-based medicine is it didn't actually define or characterize what evidence was other than the output of a published paper. And when I started to think about how evidence-based medicine might relate to some issues in theory of knowledge or epistemology or philosophy of science, I tried to map on what thinking in those fields said about what evidence is and could be and how you would base a decision. I think there are many ways in which evidence informs or influences or supports decision-making in medicine, but one doesn't base one's decisions on evidence. It sounds good. It's got a kind of nice, solid feel, right? People want to have their decisions based or founded on something. But evidence informs decisions. We don't base our decisions on evidence. Some time ago, you wrote about the inferential gaps yes. uh, between EBM evidence and real-world clinical practice. Yeah. What did you mean by that? Well, I think this is most pointed when it comes to trying to apply the results of clinical trials and systematic reviews to individual patient care. And the reason why there's an inferential gap is that Many clinical trials are very carefully designed with very clear inclusion and exclusion criteria. And the tighter that so-called internal validity becomes, the less applicable it is to a particular patient. And that's part of the inferential gap. And even in pragmatic trials, and this is, relates to some sort of complicated understanding of what it is you're doing when you create and design an experiment like a randomized trial and you create two or more groups and you measure differences between them, the actual measurement that you're creating applies only to the people in the trial. You have no guarantee, uh, no strong belief really that they're going to apply to the patient in front of you who's going to be in many ways different from the patient that or was enrolled in the trial. Now, unless you keep a list in your office as a practitioner 
of all the inclusion and exclusion criteria of all the major trials for all the major therapies that you want to use that are so-called evidence-based, you're always kind of making a subtle but important elision from the evidence of the trial to this particular patient. Calling it an inferential gap seems to suggest to me that the way to close the gap, to cross it, is through reasoning, through inference. Yes. So do you think it's fair to say that in focusing on these methods to maximize internal validity and minimize bias, focusing on those kinds of inferences, that evidence-based medicine has perhaps neglected other components of clinical reasoning, like the essential inference from a study population to the patients in front of you. Right. So part of the reason I was so drawn to argumentation theory is that I think it provides that cement. So what I've been exploring lately, these kind of defeasible argumentation structures permit what feasible argumentation structures. A feasible argument is one that holds prima facie for the time, you know, on face value. And then other inputs coming in will modify your thinking as you go along. And that crafts on very well to clinical reasoning. It also allows things like patient preferences, patient values, system considerations to fill in and hedge into some of the gaps that the classic evidence-based approach leaves. So I think argumentation helps us close those inferential gaps. Philosophers and evidence-based medicine proponents sometimes refer to the so-called hierarchy of evidence as a primary tenet of evidence-based medicine. Hierarchies of evidence rank order evidence from highest quality to lowest quality, based on its source and study features. To clarify and defend EBM's philosophy of evidence, here's Jeremy Howick fellow in the Faculty of Philosophy and in the Center for Evidence-Based Medicine at the University of Oxford. Dr. Howick, what is the hierarchy of evidence in evidence-based medicine? So first of all, there's no more, there's no longer a hierarchy. The most widely used method for ranking evidence is called the grade system. And they don't refer to it as a hierarchy as far as I'm aware. The hierarchy is an outdated term that's used only by philosophers now. So that with grade, something gets an a priori ranking of either high quality or low quality. So if something's a randomized trial, it gets an A priori ranking of high quality. And then certain factors can either move it to higher quality, super high quality, or low quality. So a randomized trial can be high or low. Likewise, an observational study, if it satisfies certain criteria, can be upgraded to as high or higher than a randomized trial, or it can be downgraded to something even lower. But in general, it's a belief that some types of evidence should be weighed more heavily than others. That's the belief. I don't believe it's called a hierarchy anymore. Why do you think that uh, randomized controlled trials are oftentimes a better source of evidence of higher quality than non-experimental studies, observational studies? I don't believe that's true universally. I think sometimes observational studies are perfectly adequate. In cases where the results of a randomized trial differ from the results of an observational study, I think there are good reasons, all other things being equal, to adopt the results of the randomized trial because they're generally better at ruling out bias. So in an observational study, there are biases such as self-selection. So if you compare people who choose to take vitamin C with those who choose not to, first of all, you're not controlling for placebo effects. So the effect is not very big. You never know if it's a placebo effect. Second of all, those who choose to take vitamin C might be young and healthy like you and might do exercise, eat healthily, 
And it might not be the vitamin C, but those other choices that you make. Whereas in a randomized trial, you, you, you never eliminate those other factors, but you can reduce the likelihood that they influence the results. That doesn't mean that randomized trials are perfect. It just means that we have some good reason to believe that we should go with the results of the randomized trial when the randomized trial and observational results differ. However, there are many, many cases where observational data is sufficient and as good. One potential source of evidence or reasoning would be using our knowledge of the pathophysiology of a disease or a treatment, and starting from that knowledge and then reasoning towards the claim or the idea that the treatment will or might produce a good outcome and be safe for a particular patient. Why do you think that that kind of reasoning is, falls victim oftentimes to problems? So I think that type of information is very useful. I think it's recognized within the EBM community it's useful. In, in Cochrane Reviews, there's a mandatory section called How the Intervention Might Work. The reason it's potentially problematic or in, even inherently problematic is that the human body is so complex. So even if you can identify one causal pathway between the treatment and some outcome, the chance that you've identified all the relevant pathways are almost null, which is why there are so many unanticipated effects. And I've said this challenge to, because I'm the only philosopher I know who doesn't support mechanisms as an equally good source of evidence, but I have this challenge for them. Now, there are many cases in the history of medicine where on the one hand, you have observational studies or randomized trials saying one thing. On the other hand, you have mechanistic reasoning saying something else, the opposite. We always opt for the results from the empirical study namely the observational study or the randomized trial, for the simple reason that we just count bodies. You know, they, in the randomized trial, more people were killed with certain treatment. I'll give one example from history. Sailors knew that eating citrus fruits cured scurvy. The Royal College of Physicians in London said you should drink some sulfuric acid. Their reason for choosing sulfuric acid, of course, was diluted form, was mechanistic reasoning. The poor humors, scurvy was a disease of putrefaction, this sulfuric acid would perk up the system. Now, James then did a trial where the citrus fruits were shown to be more effective. The Royal College of Physicians didn't accept it. They said, no, we can't accept the results of your trial. Or the long trace of empirical evidence that sailors were talking about for hundreds of years from Vasco da Gama before James then. The Royal College of Physicians refused to accept that as evidence because they had their own mechanistic reasoning. Finally, a doctor called Gilbert Blaine aboard the HMS Salisbury, I believe it's called, on a three-week voyage to India, gave his sailors citrus fruits, juice, I think six ounces a day. Not a single person died of scurvy. They arrived there healthier than when they left. Then the admiralty, the sailors basically revolted. They said, we're not going on any more trips if you don't give us citrus fruits. And the Royal College acceded. So this is a case where you have the mechanistic reasoning saying one thing, the robust empirical evidence saying something else, and we want to believe the empirical evidence. There are many other examples like this, where you have antiarrhythmic drugs putting babies back to sleep. None of these are randomized trials. These are observational studies. With antiarrhythmic drugs, it's a randomized trial. So there are many examples where the randomized trial or observational study, we all agree is superior to the mechanistic reasoning, which leads me to conclude that while both might be useful, when push comes to shove, one is a bit better. Now, I've asked these philosophers to give me one single example where the mechanistic reasoning points in one direction and the robust observational study or replicated random trial points in the other, and they want to use the mechanistic reasoning. 
when I asked them that question, they come up with examples with rubbish observational data, like retroactive prayer, where you, you can reject it without appeal to any mechanistic understanding. You just point out, you give it to a, anyone who's done some you know, elementary critical appraisal can reject the results. I mean, a, a randomized trial where we, a critical appraisal, a strict critical appraisal will say, yes, it's a good trial, and their mechanistic reasoning says something else, and we go with that. Until they come up with one single example, they're compelled to acknowledge the superiority of one method over the other, in my view. And I'm happy to be proven wrong if they can come up with some examples. What do you mean by clinical experience in the context of different kinds of evidence? Uh, how is clinical experience a kind of evidence? And why is it often thought to be a, a kind of evidence that's less reliable than well-controlled clinical studies? I'm glad you asked that because I think the role of the clinical expert is ambiguous with an EVM. It means two things very broadly. One, it means clinical judgment, which is arguably kind of evidence. So Dr. Jonathan Fuller says, in my experience, I've seen this work. I don't care what the randomized trial says. I've seen it work. My, for my patient, he's special or she's special. And the randomized trial says it doesn't work, but I say it does, and that's kind of evidence. I think that can be valuable. The reason I think in general, it's less valuable than well-controlled studies, not always, but in general, is because human observations are biased. We're talking about tiny effects, like a 3% absolute benefit. The chances of one clinician seeing enough patients to detect that benefit, and not just seeing them, but recording it in their brain in a rational way, such that they can separate the signal from the noise, is quite low. And even with largest effects, placebo effects can be quite large, and it's impossible to detect the difference between a placebo effect and a non-placebo effect outside the context of a trial. So I think it's useful. The other, the other role of the clinical expert is not as evidence per se, is clinical expertise as a skill. And as a skill, it's incredibly valuable within EBM as appraising evidence or knowing where to look for the evidence. Um, being able to diagnose a patient, being able to have a conversation, which also often involves asking sensitive questions um, to elicit a correct diagnosis. Some, some symptoms are, can be embarrassing, and if you're not good at asking the right questions, you might not get all the information about the symptoms and therefore make an inaccurate diagnosis, which would then lead to the wrong treatment. And then, of course, a skill in every step of the clinical encounter beyond the diagnosis and treatment. The GRADE approach is now the most commonly used method for ranking evidence in evidence-based medicine. Meanwhile, meta-analysis is the most common method for amalgamating evidence in EBM. I next speak about these tools with Jacob Stegenga, reader in the Department of History and Philosophy of Science at the University of Cambridge. Dr. Stegenga, why do you think that EBM's hierarchy of evidence, the evidence pyramid, should fall. Evidence hierarchies or evidence pyramids in evidence-based medicine are these epistemological structures that encode assumptions about the reliability of different methods. So certain methods are at the top of the hierarchy and certain methods are lower on the hierarchy. And these epistemological structures are often expressed or appealed to in the context of quite strong proclamations about how to assess causal inferences. So if you want to know that drug D causes X, 
claim med many evidence-based medicine. We should only appeal to methods from the top of the hierarchy. That's what the defenders of evidence hierarchies say. And there are many criticisms of this um, in the literature. And well, let me just run through a few of the standard criticisms. One of the worries is that methods at the very top of the hierarchies, like randomized trials and meta-analyses, are themselves malleable. So they are not nearly as reliable as many make them out to be. And that's because trials and meta-analyses can be bent at the will of researchers, either implicitly or explicitly. There are many decision points in these methods that allow for bias to creep into the methods. So these methods aren't nearly as good as many people make them out to be. And conversely, methods towards the bottom of evidence hierarchies are in some cases better than they're often made out to be. In particular, I'm thinking here of mechanistic reasoning. So in my view, to assess the kinds of causal hypotheses that are really important for medicine, like does this drug do blah, 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 we ought to be taking into account both evidence from top of the hierarchy and evidence from the bottom of the hierarchy, like mechanistic evidence. Now, there are some critiques of evidence-based medicine and evidence hierarchies from philosophers of science that sometimes seem as if the conclusion is we don't need randomized trials, we don't need meta-analyses, we can get by with methods lower down in the hierarchy. I don't believe that. So randomized trials and meta-analyses of trials can serve as very important epistemic benchmarks that a new drug has to meet in order for us to approve the drug, in order for regulators to approve the drug, in order for physicians to responsibly prescribe the drug. The worry is that that standard is too low and should be supplemented with evidence from lower on the hierarchy. In the last uh, 15 years or so, there have emerged more sophisticated ways of grading or ranking evidence in evidence-based medicine, namely the grade approach, which is being increasingly adopted by guideline development groups. So could you tell us just a bit about what the general philosophy is behind the grade approach and why you think that it still doesn't overcome some of the criticisms of more traditional, older evidence hierarchies? Sure. So the grade approach involves taking a particular research report, say a report from a randomized trial or case control study or meta-analysis, and then assigning it a particular level based on the design of that research method, and then promoting or demoting that method according to various features, like whether or not there was evidence of bias or what the measured effect size was. And so one of the fundamental differences about the grade approach compared to previous evidence hierarchies is that the grade approach involves assessing token methods rather than method types. So traditional evidence hierarchies rank ordered, you know, randomized trials as a type of method, case control studies lower than randomized trials as a type of method. The great approach involves initially assigning levels to token methods based on their type, but then upgrading or promoting or demoting according to particular features of that particular token method. So it's really an assessment of method tokens rather than method types. Then the question is, if we're in the business of assessing method tokens, what is the best way for us to assess method tokens? And in my view, the grade approach is a relatively naive way to assess method tokens. And it's unduly constrained in part because it's inherited 
some features of the hierarchy approach. It's often said that randomized controlled trials are the gold standard of evidence in medicine. However, you point out that in many, if not most, hierarchies of evidence, meta-analysis, or at least systematic review of randomized controlled trials, sits above the randomized trial in the hierarchy, implying that we should go to that study method first and only go to the randomized trial if we don't have a meta-analysis or systematic review of trials. So therefore, maybe we should consider the meta-analysis to be the platinum standard of evidence if the randomized trial is the gold standard. This is the term that you used. But you want to argue that the meta-analysis as a method is not the platinum standard of evidence that some medical research experts might think it is. Why do you suggest that? Right. So in this 2011 article that you're referring to, I asked the question, Are is meta-analysis the platinum standard? And I, I answered no. And the, what's interesting about meta-analysis is that there are many examples in which two meta-analyses on the same primary evidence set reach contradictory conclusions. So there are numerous cases of this. And the question is, well, how can that be? I mean, if meta-analysis is the be-all and end-all of empirical evidence in medicine, and we use that method to assess some particular hypothesis, like, does this drug do blah, 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 and two iterations of meta-analysis on the same primary evidence that reach contradictory conclusions, there's got to be a problem with the method. That was my kind of starting insight. So then I just dove into the particular details of meta-analysis, and you know, I'm not the first person to worry about this. Some standard criticisms of meta-analysis are that it's a kind of loose method. There's a lot of malleability in the method. There are multiple moving parts to meta-analysis that can be tuned in different ways. So researchers, when they're employing a meta-analysis, have to decide which particular trials to include, which to exclude. So what are the inclusion and exclusion criteria? And if you don't share the same inclusion and exclusion criteria between different meta-analyses, then you're liable to reach different conclusions. Which outcome measures in the trials to be including? What method of analysis to employ? What kind of statistical measures to use on those outcome measures? And each of those decision points affords variability in the outcome of a meta-analysis. So that's the key argument for worrying about the malleability of meta-analysis. A few other little details about meta-analysis. It's very quick and cheap to perform a meta-analysis. Um, so the data is already available. The hard part of in many meta-analyses meta is getting access to unpublished data. So if the data has been published, then uh, like in you know, publications of randomized trials, then meta-analysis is cheap and easy to perform. Uh, in the last 10 or 15 years, some scientists have been fighting to get access to unpublished data that are you know, controlled by uh, private pharmaceutical companies, and in many cases they've been successful. So that's a kind of initial challenge in performing meta-analysis. But once you have access to the data, it's there. You don't have to do the experiment yourself. And then it's easy to perform many, many iterations of analyses on your data. You know, the term of art these days is p-hacking. So it's easy to p-hack a data set when performing meta-analysis. One of the most enduring and impactful contributions of evidence-based medicine is its privileging of randomized controlled clinical trials, now considered the gold standard for evaluating medical therapies. But how scientifically important is randomization really? And what exactly does it do for us? I ask John Worrell, Professor Emeritus in the Department of Philosophy, Logic and Scientific Method at the London School of Economics. 
Professor Worrell, why do you think that EBM's evidence hierarchy is flawed? I do think that underlying it, the, the whole hierarchy of evidence approach, there are three problems. First of all, still, I think the effect size is not given enough weight. I mean, Pasteur didn't need a trial at all to know that he'd found a cure for rabies because everybody else who'd been bitten by a rabid dog before the famous child that was injected by Pasteur had died. And that seems to be overwhelming evidence. It's not any sort of trial study. It's not a, certainly not a randomised trial. But the effect size going from assured mortality to surviving the rabid bite is a massive thing. And people somehow still don't take that effect size into account enough. Secondly, I think it's a mistake to think that you can evaluate the impact of a single piece of evidence, say a single trial result, independently of other evidential factors. I mean, the well-known principle in philosophy called the principle of total evidence, which is based on the obvious fact there are lots and lots of instances where whether some evidence confirms a theory or not depends on what other evidence you've got. And, you know, I think it's a mistake to think that, for example, there are many trials, randomised control trials, some of them quite well-performed methodologically on testing whether homeopathic treatments do better than placebo. And, of course, some of those do come out positive for homeopathy. They're bound to do. If you do enough trials, we, know, we all know from the nature of statistical testing that you're bound to get some false positives and false negatives by the whole nature of the enterprise. But nobody sensible, given the rest of the evidence that we have concerning homeopathy, both in terms of other trials in which it doesn't succeed in outperforming placebo, and uh, importantly, and that's going to be the third point where I think the hierarchy of evidence is, has, has problems. Also, the evidence that you know, we just know that diluting substances to the extent required by homeopathy can't leave you with anything that's going to have an effect. So and that's then the third point, I think, that uh, underlying problem for the whole approach is that leaving out consideration of underlying mechanisms and evidence or rating what evidence-based medics often call pathophysiologic rationale very low in the hierarchy is a complete mistake. It's based on, you know, there have been a few cases in which consideration of the underlying mechanisms have led us astray, therefore never trust it, which is obviously a silly inference. So that, that's basically what I would say. What are some of the reasons given for including randomized trials at the top of the evidence hierarchy? And do those reasons stand up? Yeah, I think in terms of single results, of course, uh, meta-analyses and systematic reviews in some hierarchies are put higher than any single result. Any single result, randomization always comes out top, I think, in all the ones I know about anyway. Well, let's take one, let's take two, to be fair, equal treatment and all that. One, one where I think it succeeds, one, one where the rationale does succeed, and that's that it's undoubtedly the case that randomizing, if done properly, and of course you can't always guarantee that, but if it's done properly, then it controls against selection bias. It stops doctors or clinicians being able, perhaps subconsciously, to affect the outcome of the trial by making decisions for each participant, whether they go into the experimental or control group. And they may, since they may well have a definite interest in getting a so-called positive result, they may perhaps even subconsciously put the stronger patient participants into the experimental group and the weaker ones into the control group and that may obviously bias the outcome of the of the trial and if it if the decision is not made by any human but by the coin toss or whether the random number produced by some generator is even or odd then that takes that out of their hands so i think that that's a definite specific possible bias that can affect the result of a trial that randomization controls against but it's not of course the only way that you can eliminate selection bias and you may again coming back to the point about 
effect size, you may not worry in some cases. I mean, one can certainly envisage cases. Let's say you did a trial on the treatment for the common cold and you split it into experimental and control groups. After half an hour, half of the people are, have completely recovered from their cold, even though everybody had cold of roughly the same severity. Then you wouldn't care really whether it had been selection bias or not because the effect size is so big. Given what we know, background knowledge always very important. Given what we know about the natural history of colds and the extent of the placebo effect on colds, which we know is positive but not very not very large, certainly not enough to account for such a big size. Okay, so that's the, that. It does control for selection bias, but selection bias a may not worry you if the effect size is big enough, and b can be dealt with without randomising. The main argument that nobody actually seriously believes at the end, I think, but it's nonetheless permeated the literature and affects those people who are doing the trials who aren't, who haven't perhaps systematically thought about methodology, is this argument that by randomising and only by randomising, you control for all possible confounders, both known and unknown, really. That's misleading terminology, I think, both suspected on the basis of background knowledge to be a possible confounder and not suspected uh, to be a possible confounder because you just haven't thought of it at all. And you know, you may be able to produce a sort of probabilistic long-term argument to that effect that if you did the trial time and time again with equivalent patients, though you wouldn't know what, how to justify that, I think, and kept a sort of cumulative score, then maybe in the long run all the possible confounders, known or unknown, would get washed out. But in an individual trial, obviously that can't, that's, it could be as confounded as you like, and as you can imagine. If it's just a sort of one-off trial, then obviously this is respect to unknown confounders, confounders you don't, you don't suspect. They may or may not affect the outcome, and you've got no reason to think that they do. And I think that's why it's very important, although some methodologists deny it, to even when you've done a randomised trial, to check for what's called baseline confounders. That is, known factors... The, factors that background knowledge tells you may well play a role in outcome um, have not be become unbalanced through the random process, which they, the fact that people allow, most people allow that you should check for baseline confounders shows that the argument that all confounders known and unknown are automatically control fault isn't really a sensible one. Yeah, so that's basically, and then I think it's salutary to reflect on the incredibly small number of treatments that are unambiguously successful in medicine and have been their introduction has been based on randomised control trials against treatments that are definitely effective that were not, never subject to a randomised control trial. Uh, it's really hard to think why you should put randomised control trials on such a pedestal when you look at the treatments that we have that we think are effective and have good evidence are effective. Uh, there are very few of them. Are there ways to rule out selection bias without randomising when the effect size that you measure isn't so large yeah well it depends of course what you mean by randomizing if you look at the history alternating participants for example would count as randomizing but nowadays it, that, that that wouldn't it's got to be you know the random number generator or, or whatever the important thing is that it, the division between the experimental control group should not be in the hands of someone who might have an ulterior motive for wanting a positive result or indeed a, ne a negative result so if you just did it you know someone else just alternating, for example, I can't see how that would, as I say, it wouldn't count as a random process on fancy notions of randomised controls, but I can't see why that would be any, would be at all problematic unless somebody's cheated by lining people up in a way that if they knew that. But the, you've got to get into some real science fiction, I think, to, 
to think of that as problematic. You've used your example of ECMO for newborns to motivate your concerns about evidence-based medicine. What cautionary tale can that example tell us? Well, I'm, nobody sensible can be against evidence-based medicine because it seems to me any rationalist believes that any rational process of theory generation and evidence, bringing evidence to bear on those theories is about evidence. I mean, of course you want medicine. What else are you going to base it on? Of course you want to base medicine on evidence or the claims in medicine on, on, on evidence. It's all about the detail. So it's not that I'm against evidence-based medicine. I'm certainly against fetishization of randomization as a sine qua non of any real evidential weight. And that's really the caution in the cautionary tale that, that is ECMO, that is formed by ECMO. This was a treatment, extracorporeal membranous oxygenation, which a treatment for a persistent pulmonary hypertension of the newborn. And some investigators at the University of Michigan Hospital this is a condition in which the historical mortality rate at, uh, at that time was 80%. And they introduced this new treatment, ECMO, which, by the way, had a very plausible mechanical rationale as being a less, much less invasive way of oxygenating the blood, waiting for the uh, lungs of these poor neonates to develop sufficiently so they could breathe successfully for themselves. They introduced it and they turned uh, an 80% mortality rate into an 80% survival rate without any cherry picking or at least so professor bartlett assured me in correspondence there was no question they were just treating the same patients that they previously treated with the then conventional treatment with the new one and they were getting 80 percent success rates and therefore were perfectly convinced themselves that that was very good evidence that this was a very important new treatment with obviously a massive effect size but people said, no, 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 you can't have any evidence unless you've done a randomised controlled trial. So they were forced, much against their wishes, to do a randomised controlled trial. But because they felt that randomising patients to the control arm was pretty well a definite death sentence, they modified the protocol and did it with something called the randomised play the winner system, where the first baby was assigned to ECMO or conventional treatment on a genuinely randomised process let's think of it as an urn model so you had one red and one black ball and you took a ball out of the urn and if it was red they got ECMO if it was black they got conventional treatment but then you bias the urn depending on the on the results as a matter of fact in the actual case the first baby was given ECMO and survived so there was another red ball for ECMO put in the in the urn and it, and it finished up that I think as I remember 11 babies were involved in the trial nine of them got ECMO of whom eight survived and two, I'm just making the numbers up, I'd have to look at whole papers on it, but two got conventional treatment, both of whom died. So, okay, they'd done something that you could call randomised because it was randomised play the winner, but the conventional people again said, no, 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 that's not a proper randomised trial and there aren't enough babies in the control group. You've got to do it properly randomised. And so Bartlett and people wouldn't, wouldn't do that because they felt that I think rightly that they've got evidence that ECMO was more effective, massively more effective. So another properly randomised trial was done and they had to stop that trial early because of an excessive number of deaths on the control arm. It was then repeated in Europe because people felt for some reason that maybe ECMO worked in America but not do in Europe. And again, the trial had to be stopped because there were too many deaths in the conventional treatment arm. And ECMO became conventional treatment. I, I understand now it was accepted as, the, as a good treatment. I understand now it's been outperformed by something else, which is great, obviously. So I think it's the fetishization of randomization that, that, that really worries me and the refusal that you can't really back up by any sensible 
a counter theory confirmation that you've got no real evidence at all that's worth anything if you haven't had a, haven't done a randomised trial. Now, I don't think anyone, again, seriously believes that, but it's the message that gets across into the medical community and gets applied, uh, as the ECMO case shows. To hear more Philosophers on Medicine, visit www.philosophersonmedicine.com or find us on iTunes or Google Play.